Bridging the gap between the eye test and the analytics, it's the Staff and Graph Podcast with your hosts, Rachel Dory and Ian Tullock. Welcome to the Staff and Graph Podcast. I'm Rachel Dory. And I'm Ian Tullock. So, Rachel, I've been off for the last week. I've been away at camp, uh, a March break camp for kids with special needs. And as you can tell, my voice is a little bit shot after all of the uh, the tobogganing and the snowball fights and all the fun I've had up there. And uh, it seems like the Leafs took the last week off too. So all is good in my life. I mean, I just love that you spent your March break with kids with special needs. Like, look at you with a big heart. I spent my week going to Dangle's book launch, which <laughs> was fun, and the OHL Cup, actually. So it was definitely good. A lot of good hockey, but uh, I can't say that I saw a lot of good hockey from the Leafs. That's definitely for sure. Luckily for us, this isn't a Leafs podcast, so we don't have to talk about the the past week of non-goaltending and non-first periods and a lot of frustration in Leafs land, but this is a broader hockey podcast where we talk about major themes and we're going to set up episodes around one entire theme. So what is the thing we're going to talk about this week, Rachel? Uh, we're going to talk about the concept of resting guys and having a rested roster throughout the NHL season. So using the entirety of the 23-man roster up until the deadline and then further to that, using more players after the deadline and in the playoffs. So I think right off the top, the, the, the quickest comparison we can make is comparing the NHL to the NBA. Both are 82-game seasons, both play back-to-backs where star players get really tired. But in one league, we see players get rested on the second half of back-to-backs. We see veterans sitting out, you know, three games in five nights. I think back to Tim Duncan on the San Antonio Spurs. Whereas in hockey, you have these Iron Man streaks like Patrick Marlowe, and you're told that you have to play through pain and... Playing 82 games seems to be something that every player wants to do and every coach wants their players to do. Whereas in the NBA, there seems to be a bit of a different mentality when it comes to that. So why do you think that exists in the first place? Um, It's actually a very good point. Like now more than ever, you're seeing NBA sit their stars. I think LeBron sat the other night, which is unheard of. Like you would never hear that Sidney Crosby just took the night off or Connor McDavid just took the night off. And I think potentially one of the reasons that is um, is because hockey really prides itself currently on that Ironman streaker being able to play through things. And I think that's been proven to not necessarily be the best approach. But I remember when Andrew Cogliano got suspended and that ended his Ironman streak and he was basically in tears. But the reality is you're not playing hockey to finish first and win the President's Trophy. You're playing hockey to win the Cup. And the team that's the most rested and has the least amount of injuries obviously gets a little bit of luck, too. They're likely the team that wins the Cup. So I think it probably makes more sense to maybe go in this direction. But I know you sort of have an idea of what the NBA does. Like, what is their philosophy on when a player should or shouldn't sit? So Greg Popovich was really the first one to start doing it. And then a lot of teams followed suit. And... Basically, a few years ago, he had Tim Duncan, who was a Hall of Fame caliber player, just an incredible power forward, one of the best players we've ever seen over the last 20, 30 years. But he was getting up into his late 30s, and he wasn't playing as many minutes as he did, and he obviously wasn't the same player he was. So to help prolong his career and help to to help make sure that he was ready for the playoffs come, you know, game 82, game 83, heading into heading into April he would sit on the second half of back-to-backs and he would sit the third game in five nights or or maybe in the middle of of three games in five nights. And it's funny because if you looked at the box score, sometimes it would say DNP, like did not play. And usually it would say did not play due to ankle injury, did not play due to, you know, a knee injury, you know, DNP ankle sprain. For him, it would say DNP old. (laughs) (laughs) It was hilarious. (laughs) And Greg Popovich is really blunt and really honest with, you know, reporters and media. And it's, it's funny, but I think it's a really smart concept. The idea is that in the regular season, you know that you're going to have a pretty good record. You know that when your team is as good as the Spurs, that you're going to make the playoffs. There's no point of playing Tim Duncan over 30 minutes a night, 82 games the regular season, and having him be completely worn out come April. So what he decided to do was, okay, I'm going to arrest this guy on some nights. I'm going to arrest some of my other star players. I'm going to arrest Tony Parker. I'm going to arrest Manu Ginobili 
on this one night against the last place team in the league because we don't really care about that game. Or I'm going to rest them on the second half of a back-to-back because I want to make sure that we're well-rested for a long run in this season. And it's a marathon, not a sprint. And I feel like too many times players are trying to fight their way through an injury when really in the long run, they'd be much better just sitting a game or two, letting it fully heal and then getting back when they're 100%. I feel like the Spurs are one of the first teams to actually use that concept and run with it. And then we've seen teams like the Warriors go with it. This year we're seeing Kawhi Leonard and the Raptors sitting on the second half of back-to-backs. I think it makes a lot of sense in the regular season. Obviously in the playoffs, you play your star players, you play your best players as much as you can. But in order for them to get to that point where they're where they're peaking in April, you need to make sure that you're not burning them out in February or March. So I think it makes a lot of sense. So it's the concept of load management, right? Basically, that's what it comes down to. I feel like this is a it applies to goaltenders, I think, as well, which is what you're probably going to talk about now. Yeah, like I would say if you're, let's say, a goaltender, right, when you look at how the best teams have won, um, you look at the years that Pittsburgh won, they had Flurry and Murray. And, you know, like down the stretch, Murray was playing and Flurry was kind of not the guy. And then in the playoffs, they still needed both of those goaltenders. But you're looking now, like I looked this year and even last year, in Boston, you've got Rask and Halak. In the island, you have Leonard and Grice. In Dallas, you have uh, Bishop and Hudobin. Um, even Pekka Rene is playing less, and he's into his mid-upper 30s. So the fact that they're giving Saros some time definitely shows that, hey, like we need to have Rene sort of ready to go for the playoffs because we don't need him to burn out. You're seeing that with Smith and Riddick, and that might be more of a a function of both goaltenders haven't played all that well for stretches, so they need the other guy to step up. But when... You're looking at it now, the top goaltenders with the top games played are Freddie Anderson, and had Vasilevsky not been hurt, he probably would have been playing close to 70 games. Marc-Andre Fleury is probably going to hit 65 games. Like You're asking a lot out of these goaltenders, and I think more and more now we're seeing the importance of having that second goaltender, somebody like Aaron Dell in San Jose. What do you think a team could do to sort of solidify that second goaltending spot? Because... I mean, Toronto had four goalies to pick from. Carolina has had a goaltending carousel, but it's worked out for them. And Because Curtis McElhaney's all of a sudden a Vesna candidate. <laughs> exactly. And like Philadelphia has Carter Hart, but even when you're breaking a young goaltender into the league, like you can't throw the guy in there for 50 or 60 games. It should probably be more of a 40-42, should it not? Yeah, it's hard because if you're a team like the Leafs, I mean, you look at Garrett Sparks' performance this year, and I know that online on Twitter he's public enemy number one in Toronto but if we're being objective he hasn't played that great this year whereas Frederick Anderson is a legitimate Vesna candidate so there's quite a discrepancy in the talent in net but at the same time you don't want to play Frederick Anderson 70 games because I think the fact that you brought up Vasilevsky and Anderson is really important because they both played a lot of games last year and look at what happened in their performance later in the season. You look at their performance in March and April, they didn't play very well. And I think Vasilevsky even spoke out about the fact that he was getting fatigued later in the season. He wasn't used to playing this many games. His body wasn't ready for it. I think one of the most prominent examples is Cam Talbot a few years ago, played 73 games for the Edmonton Oilers, had an incredible season, arguably should have won the Vesna or at least been in the top three that year. For sure. And his career has completely collapsed in the seasons afterwards. He's really fallen off the map after that 73 start season. Is it because it was a bit of an outlier of a performance and maybe that's not his true goaltending talent level? That's possible, but I have to think that playing that many games and putting that much stress on his groin, his knees, his body, I have to think that that might have impacted his performance in the future. So anytime you're playing a goalie over 60, 65, I mean 70 games, I think it's it's kind of crazy in the modern era when you consider how many times these guys are going down into the butterfly, how many times these guys are going post to post. It's not the same as back in the day when Martin Brodeur or Marty Turco were doing the stand-up style. That's a lot easier to play, you know, north of 70 games because you're not going down into the butterfly as often. With a goaltender who plays a style like Carey Price, it's really hard on your body. So anytime you're playing more than 60 games, you tend to not see many long playoff runs. If you look at the most recent Stanley Cup winners, you've alluded to it. It's guys like Matt Murray. It's guys like Braden Holtby. It's guys who have only played about 50 to maybe low 60s numbers of games. I think that's the sweet spot, somewhere in the high 50 range. Yeah, and even if, let's take a step back and look at just the schedule. I was 
going through and I was asking some people in basketball and just kind of doing my own research, the NBA actually noticed what Greg Popovich was doing and they made adjustments to their schedules. Now, the NHL has this like bye week mixed in with all-star break. It's kind of odd. Um, but because of that, the schedule was more cramped. But just to give you an idea, like listen to some of the things that the NBA does now. So they've eliminated stretches of four games in five days and 18 games in 30 days. Um, There's only 40 instances across the entire schedule of five games in seven nights, which is down half. And there's a reduction in a number of back-to-backs. So when you're looking at things like that, there's less travel involved. I think they said travel's down 17% this year in terms of just one-offs. Like one-game road trips? Exactly. So when you're looking at that, that's potentially an NHL thing where they need to say to the players, like, we need to come to an agreement if you guys don't want to be playing tired. And absolutely fair comment by the players like Vasilevsky to say they are fatigued because 82 games is, it's a lot. So potentially something for the NHL to look at. You know what? Do we really need four games in six nights or do we need four games in five nights do we really need 17 back-to-backs I don't really think that's necessary right and the fact that teams are going out west or teams are coming out east two or three times a year like I think teams would probably prefer let's say you're Montreal for example or a Washington they would probably prefer to do the full eight game road trip go play all four Canadian uh, western teams and do California in one swing with maybe Vegas in there and then you have another trip that has Dallas Arizona that type of thing because I think it would probably be easier on the body the the more that your body has to adjust to time difference the more fatigued it's going to be so I think that the NHL might want to account for travel and that fatigue factor I feel like the root of the problem here is that the season's just too long when you think about it just the fact that it's 82 games In the NBA, if the season were a perfect length, we wouldn't see teams resting their stars because it would be a a good schedule that worked for everyone, but it obviously isn't. And teams feel like somewhere in the 70 to 75 range is a much more realistic number for their players than the 82 number. So I know we're never going to see the NHL take games off the schedule because that's money coming out of people's pockets. It's money coming out of ticket sales. I understand that. But... I just feel like what we're talking about here is the fact that 82 games in a regular season when you're gearing up for the playoffs, it's it's just too much on the body and you can't expect players to go through an 82-game regular season and be in peak physical condition come April. Right, totally. And when you're asking your players to play 82 games in a healthy season and then potentially if you're the Warriors or if you're Tampa Bay in the NHL, now go play four rounds when you could potentially be playing an extra 28 games. Are you kidding? That's literally 130 games. Not to mention preseason or whatever tournaments they might be doing in the summer before. Well, yeah, and I think that goes perfectly with rookies, right? When you're breaking into a man's game in the NHL where we have guys... Elias Pettersson is a perfect example. He's six foot two, and I think... 165 pounds which he is obviously a little slight but it is his rookie year and when you're in the western conference playing against guys like ryan kessler and ryan getzlav and anze kopitar maybe rolling the guy out for 82 games isn't the best idea and i know he was hurt but if you look at what happened to him this week where he got elbowed in the head by Kreider, and just the fact that over the past 10 or so games he slowed down a little bit you can tell that he's kind of hit a wall and i think maybe we need to look at how teams deploy their rookies. And I'm thinking, especially for guys who come from college or European leagues, they're probably playing close to like 40, maybe 50 games in their uh, you know pre-draft year or their draft year before coming to the NHL. In junior, I guess guys are a bit more used to playing those 60 or 70 game seasons. But if you're coming from college, you might have played 40 games the year before, and now you're expected to come into the NHL and play 82 That's a crazy adjustment, and I feel like it would make a lot of sense to maybe say, let's say you have a guy next year, Kale McCarr on the Colorado Avalanche, or Quinn Hughes on the Vancouver Canucks. 
maybe you don't expect them to play 82 games. Maybe you circle games on the calendar where you say, okay, you're taking this back-to-back off. You're not playing three games in five nights here. We're going to keep you well-rested for the regular season, and the number we're aiming for this year is 70. Or the number we're aiming for is 75, and we'll see if injuries and health let us get there. But I feel like this expectation of playing every single game doesn't fit with the narrative of, you know, playing your best hockey in the playoffs because if you have someone who's not used to playing a long 82 game season and you force them to do it are they going to be ready for playoff hockey in April probably not it just it feels like we're focusing so much on the regular season and if you look at the playoff format the regular season just doesn't really matter that much anymore if you're a team like Toronto nothing it's insane that's what I mean Like, you have a phenomenal regular season if you're Toronto, and you still have to play Boston in the first round. A few years ago, Columbus has the best season in franchise history. You know what their reward was? Playing Pittsburgh in the first round and getting beat in five games. It's not fair. And if we're going to have a playoff format like this, then you shouldn't put much stock in the regular season. You shouldn't be worried about playing these 82 games. You should be worried about making sure that you're ready to go for the seven that happened in April, or hopefully May and June. So, again... I think it comes down to that, you know, hockey culture mentality of toughing it out, playing through pain and, you know, for the boys, you know, the, that kind of mentality. And I understand it in the playoffs. I think there's a lot to be said for someone who can play through some pain and really give you a, a, an incredible performance in the playoffs. You know, the Michael Jordan flu game in basketball is iconic. The Kurt Schilling Red Sox game for the Red Sox, that's, that's a historic game and it's incredible. And, and you love hearing about that kind of stuff as a fan of sports. Well, even Patrice Bergeron playing game six with like a punctured lung, that is definitely not a good idea. Isn't that like life-threatening? How do you do that? (laughs) It is totally life-threatening. But the inner fan in me, the inner sports fan in me, and if I'm a Boston Bruins fan, I'd be buying a jersey of him. I'd be like putting up pictures of him in my room. Like it's it's that awesome sports fan thing that that you watch movies about. But in the regular season on a Tuesday night against the Montreal Canadiens or the Ottawa Senators, who cares? Sit out that game. Get your rest. Go home and see your family for a few days. I just I don't understand why we need to play 82 games in a full season when the regular season clearly doesn't matter that much. Okay, so let's let's look at Tampa because they're a brilliant example. Yes, they're on a record-setting pace, but I think everyone can collectively say Tampa's goal is not to break the Montreal Canadiens' record of 132 points. Tampa's goal is to win the Cup. So Kucherov, unless McDavid is, turns into McDavid, which, I mean, is a distinct possibility. And over the last 10 games, he has 20 points, I think. Exactly. He He's basically got the Art Ross locked up. If you're John Cooper, are you going to guys and saying, okay... Ryan McDonough and Braden Point, you're taking a seat tonight. Or Stamkos and Victor Hedman, you're taking a seat tonight. Vasilevsky, grab a seat on the bench. Or even better, there's no roster limit, and I think Tampa might have room under the cap. Call up your AHL goaltender and have him back up for a night or two. Like, there's no roster limit. So if you're John Cooper or... Um, even Boston and Toronto, who I get are fighting for home ice, but the reality is you're playing each other in the first round and each of those teams have one in the other team's barn. Are you not more concerned as a coach that your guys are playing their best as opposed to where they're playing? Also, that point you made about bringing up your AHL goalie, I've never understood why if you have no intention of playing your goalie in a game, like for example, if... Uh, it's the second half of a back-to-back and you're putting your backup in. Why is your starter on the bench? Because I don't want him coming in the game, even if my, my backup lays an egg. You know what I mean? Because then that's just putting more strain on my starter's you know, load. You've got injury worries though, right? But it's in a game that's probably already lost if I have to bring him into the game. And I'm wasting important... I don't even know what the right word is. If this is video game talk, we're using health points on a player. But it, I'm talking about a goalie who just played the night before, and I'm going to throw him into the, the second half of the back-to-back in a game that's probably already lost. I would call up my OHL goal. That's uh, what my I mean. AHL goaltender. You can't play with one goaltender. Like, that's just not allowed. Oh, no, no, I'm not saying that. I'm just saying I don't understand why the starter is on the bench when he's on the second half of a back-to-back. I just feel like someone else should be there, and your starter should go home and rest. Yeah, and I know some teams have, like, salary cap. Like, I don't think Edmonton would be able to do that, just the way the cap works. But, I mean, Toronto, there's no roster limit right now after the trade deadline. So, 
playing guys like Tampa being able to call up guys from their minor league team just to be able to sit guys who play the heavy hockey like sit a guy like Sorelli sit a guy like Kalorn sit Andre Pilat or anyone who's been dinged up or been ill this season or is getting up there in age like an Anton Strawman a Dan Girardi I mean, you might, you, you might, maybe you should be sitting Dan Girardi anyways. <laughs> yeah, but even if you look at around the league, so Zdeno Chera, Brooks Orpik, um, Zach Parise, David Backus, Joe Pavelski, Joe Thornton. Like, what is the harm as a coach? Let's say you're behind any one of those benches, San Jose, Boston, Washington. You know that you're going to need all those guys going in the playoffs. What is the harm in going to them and say, hey, like you're 35, 36 years old. We want you to be good to go for the playoffs. Like, how would you approach that? So this is what I was going to bring up is the fact that Patrick Marlowe is a really good example of this. He's 39 years old this year. And I have an article coming out on Tuesday about how he's just not the player he was a few years ago. He's not even the player he was last year or two years ago. He's really declined. And he has this streak going where he hasn't missed a game since 2009. It's completely insane. And it's, especially for a player of his age, something to be really proud of. But as a coach, how do you tell this player that, yeah, you're not playing tonight. I'm going to break this streak because I want to give you rest. It's important to the players. And as much as we say, hey, the regular season doesn't matter. And these, these streaks and these game played at the end of the day, they're not really that important to the player. They're important. So how do you balance that? Yeah, I think in hockey right now, you're just, you don't see that streak. I think Patrick Marlowe's got the respect of of Mike Babcock and I think all of his teammates. So he's probably earned that right, even though he definitely does need a rest. But I mean, a guy like Chera doesn't have the streak going. David Backus doesn't have it. Parise literally just came back from a back injury. And I get it that Minnesota's fighting for the playoffs. So you know what? You run your guys out. But let's say Minnesota was comfortably in third in their division. You'd never see Parisi sit. And you, you're you not going to see Pavelski sit. And you're not going to see Thornton sit. Even though Thornton's like a year and a half removed from having to totally redo his knee. He, yeah, he's playing on no knees. Didn't he lose like the MCL in both knees or something like that? Yeah, like he had to have major surgery on his knees. So I just, I wonder when we'll see a Greg Popovich type of decision made in hockey where the coach just says, hey, Jumbo Joe, like you're going to grab a seat tonight because we need you ready to go for the playoffs. Because at the end of the day, regular season, it clearly doesn't matter that much in the NHL with, with the way that the playoff format is. So what's the harm? I would rather have my big guns going 100% in the playoffs than have played all 82 games and racked up all these points because it doesn't matter. No one cares what your statistics are in the regular season if you don't win the cup. Sponsoring this week's podcast is our good friend Mike Camito on Hockey Twitter who has released a book called Hockey 365. It's a great read about stories throughout NHL history for every day of the calendar year. 365 days, 365 stories. So, for example, on March 26th, 1917, the Seattle Metropolitans became the first U.S.-based team to win the Stanley Cup. Or this one's a great story for Rachel. On July 20th, 1992, Sharks hired Deborah Wright as an amateur scout, making her the first female scout in NHL history. That story also feeds into another great one about Angela Gorgone, who started with the Devils as a hockey assistant and went on to become the Ducks' first scouting coordinator. Another example for me as a Leafs fan, you can find out about that great it was 4-1 game or the brilliant Tom Coovers for Scott Niedermeyer trade back in the 90s. It's a great read if you're a hardcore hockey fan, and I have to think that if you're listening to this podcast, you fit that mold. So if you're looking to read a great book about hockey history, you can find Hockey 365 wherever books are sold, whether it's Amazon, Chapters. I was in an Indigo the other day and saw it in the sports section. So make sure you check it out. Mike Camito is one of my favorite people on hockey Twitter, and I love supporting the nice people on the internet because we're running out of those these days. So see what you can do to help support Mike's work. He's written a great book, Hockey 365, wherever books are sold. And the thing I find very interesting is that it's something we see, I think, in every other sport. You look at baseball, you'll have older players, you know, taking a day off in, I don't know, August, taking a day off in July. Uh, Jose Bautista, they did this a lot with him in Toronto. 
he'd just take a day off in July because, you know, it's a long season. It's even longer in baseball than it is in other sports. So you take some days off here and there. You don't play the full 162 games. If you're a player like Bautista and you play 150, yeah, you're happy with that because... That's utterly ridiculous, too. It's, it's, it, that's another conversation for another day. <laughs> but you look at that. I mean, you look in the NBA that like we talked about. Soccer is something that I know you're very familiar with teams are missing regular season games so that they're ready to go for Champions League matches that are much more important. And it's funny because in soccer, this the regular season and playoffs kind of happen at the same time. So you need to work around rest interestingly where you, you miss a regular season game so that you're ready to go for the playoff game. It's hard to explain to people who don't follow soccer closely, but that's basically how it works. And then in sport like the NFL, if you've locked up first seed with two weeks to go in the regular season, Tom Brady's probably not playing more than the first quarter or he might not even suit up for game number 16 of the regular season. And that's just become common practice now because we've seen players get injured in meaningless games. I mean, Derrick Rose, when he blew out his knee the first time for the Chicago Bulls, it was in the last two minutes of a, of a game that his team was winning by like 15 or 20 points. Right. He shouldn't have been on the court. Exactly. Get Let's go. Take him off. And I think you, you see that Nick Nurse in Toronto does a very good job with Kawhi Leonard and Kyle Lowry. And obviously Greg Popovich is king when it comes to this stuff. Um, Steve Kerr in Golden State. Like you're seeing all these coaches who, who are really looking at the seismic shift in how sports science has really come about. And so getting into that, let's say you have your 13th, 14th forwards, your 7-8 defensemen. What is the ideal number of games, let's say, that those guys play? Is it 25 or 30? Like, What do you think is the ideal number there? Or I think a better question might be if you have an aging player or maybe even a really young player who's not who's not ready to play a full 82 game season. What's the ideal number there? What would be the ideal number for a Ron Hainsey or a Patrick Marlowe? Or maybe what would be the ideal number next year for Erasmus Sandin, who's never played a full season? Is 70 a good number to aim for? Because then you can miss some back-to-backs, you can miss some three and fives. You can take a game off where you have a four-game break, and that way it turns into a week off of hockey. You can do smart things to give the player more rest throughout the regular season. So to me, I think that's the more important number to me. I want to get players down to the 70 to 75 range and then the the 13th forward he'll fill in in those games and whether that puts him to 25 or 30 games whether that gets him up to 40 it doesn't really matter but seeing guys like Josh Levo or Frankie Corrado or this year it's Justin Hall just sitting the sit in the press box for months on end it doesn't really make sense because that's not good for the player either he loses his groove he's not used to playing competitive hockey at the NHL level for weeks on end and it results in his play falling off a cliff. So I, I just, I feel like it's best for everyone to get a rotation of players going. You know, use your 13th forward, use your 14th forward. Hell, use your 15th forward if he's not waiver eligible. And we don't really see it, but I, I got to think we will in five to 10 years. Yeah. So let's say you are Calgary, for example, right? They're pretty much like they're firmly in the playoffs, right? Do you give Matthew Kachuk a night off? Because that guy plays really hard. And yes, he's young. But man, oh man, like that guy is a bowling ball. So I'm not even talking about a rotation of your third and fourth line players where maybe like one guy comes in, one guy comes out, and this, that, and the other. But I'm talking as you get towards the end of the season where you know you're in the playoffs... Are you starting to go to the guys that maybe play a little bit harder? So an Alex Killorn in Tampa Bay, um, a Zach Hyman in Toronto, um, a David Backus in Boston, Matthew Kachuk, Antoine Roussel, like those types and say, hey, like you're going to grab a seat tonight just because we want to make sure that you're ready to go. Like, would you do that? 100%. And I feel like that's kind of what this podcast is about. It's about trying to shift the idea of what we think about when we're looking at regular season success and it's funny, a point that we haven't brought up yet is the fact that the way that we tend to evaluate forwards is, oh, how many points did you put up this season? Were you a 70-point guy? You know, were you an 80-point guy? Were you, oh, you had a 90-point season. Wow, that's huge. We never really look at the points per game, and I feel like that's a huge flaw, and it's something that the NBA does when you're looking at how many points did James Harden score this season? Oh, you know, he scored over 30 points per game. Steph Curry scored 28 points per game. Pascal Siakam having a breakout year. He's having, you know, 16 points per game. That's awesome. We don't look at total points in the NBA because that would be nonsensical. We don't really care about the difference in total points because, hey, maybe one guy played 75 games, the other guy played 80 games. But 
at the end of the day, I care more about how many points is my player scoring per game. And there was the year where Jamie Benn won the Art Ross, and I'm like, yeah, that's great and all, but you know, Crosby had more points per game, and he played a few games less. But that was that's much more important to me. And I feel like this points argument is something that's going to come up when we talk about players sitting games. Oh, how can you rest Austin Matthews? You know, five games in the regular season, he's he's going to want to get his point totals. He wants to, you know, chase ninety or hundred points. He wants to chase fifty goals. I think we should focus way more on points per game because that's much more important when you think about it. And what's interesting is if you ask any of the players, they will never publicly say, oh, I'm chasing 40 or 50 goals. I guarantee you, you ask any single player and they, you ask them what their goal is and they say, I want to win the cup. Okay, well, if you really want to win the cup, then you got to grab a seat for five or six games in the regular season, maybe even 10, so that you're rested for when we actually need you to go do the thing and win the cup, right? And you know what? If you only get... 42 goals instead of 50 or you only get 90 points instead of 100 then so be it but I think the mentality there and points per game gets used in arbitration so you know that teams are aware of it and do use it because they they use that in arbitration but if you want to win the cup then I'd argue that maybe the 50 goal season really isn't that important yeah and when you think of someone like Braden Point for example I guarantee you he wants to put up 100 points this year. You know, it's a nice number. It's a cool number. Not many players put up 100 points in a regular season. And if he sits the last two games of the regular season when he's sitting at 98 points, I guarantee you he's going to be pissed off. But I feel like it's up to the coach to make that decision that's best for his team and not best for his player. Much like it's up to a team doctor to tell a player, no, you can't play. Even though the player wants to play, it's not what's best for the player. And I feel like sometimes as a coach, it's almost that that paternalism. You know, you need to make a decision that's not always popular with the player, but you're looking out for their best interests. And, you know, you know Mitch Marner, I love you. I want you to, to have the best season you can. I want you to try to get 100 points, but let's take a night off here. Let's let's get your reset and, and let's go right after this break. You know, something like that, I feel like, doesn't get talked about in hockey circles. And it's strange to me because we see it in every other sport, but hockey seems to have... More of a caveman mentality than baseball, which which I find crazy, but it's it's clearly been the case. Okay, so here's an idea. What do you think of this? We're seeing now more than ever that contracts, other than the entry levels for obvious reasons, don't really have performance bonuses attached. It's mainly signing bonuses. So with the exception of the entry level deal, which I totally understand if a player wants to hit those bonuses because it could take a $995,000 contract and make it into a $3 million contract. So that I totally understand. But now you're seeing players sign for more signing bonus money, which is guaranteed. So guys don't really have the performance bonus numbers to hit, aka if you get 40 goals or if you play 70 games, you get this bonus. So because we're seeing those performance bonuses taken away, is there maybe some merit to the fact that, hey, like, we need you to rest. Like you don't have money depending on whether you play or not. And I understand that you're motivated to play and contribute, but we need you to be motivated and able to contribute in the playoffs when the chips are down. I think there's an interesting example with the schedule B bonuses last year. Austin Matthews was top 10 in the NHL in goals per game. I mean, I think he was top two or three. He was phenomenal at it, but he wasn't top 10 in total goals because he missed a bunch of games due to a back injury. So that prevented him from getting $2 million in Schedule B bonuses. That's huge. That's insane. And that's big for a player. But I think it speaks to how absurd a goal total number is in a Schedule B bonus. I don't understand why the bonuses aren't based on a per-game basis. As long as you hit a minimum of, say, 40 games, I feel like goals per game, assists per game, and points per game should be the Schedule B bonuses. And to my knowledge, it's only points per game. That's part of the Schedule B bonuses. Goals per game and assists per game don't fall in that category. And that's really important for players who are drafted in the top five, top ten, who have phenomenal years because those Schedule B bonuses, those are $2 million. That's Artemi Panarin got his in, in Chicago, and it really forced them to some cap, uh, some cap struggles. Austin Matthews missed out on $2 million last year. That's not nothing to a player. So I feel like for our idea of star players missing games to work for both sides— you'd need the performance bonuses to be on a per-game basis, not on a, a total basis, which I, the, most of them are these days. Right, and then let's say you do... Let's say teams go and they start resting guys, right? Do you think that maybe we see more innovative 
roster construction, like eleven and seven potentially. I've been talking about eleven and seven so often this year. That's something I really want to see. Okay, why? Like, what do you like about eleven and seven, but potentially that twelve and six doesn't give you? I just like that it's different. I like that it's outside the box, and we've been. Honestly, I don't understand the idea of three forwards, two defense, why that needs to be the case at all times. I just I like the idea of switching things up. It's part of the reason the four forward, one D power play. It was innovative. Teams tried something new, and it turned out that it was much more effective. 11 forwards and 7D, let's say you don't have uh, a good fourth line center, but you have really good wingers, and you have three very strong centers. A team like the Toronto Maple Leafs, for example, or maybe a team like, who's another example that might fit that mold? I don't know, the Winnipeg Jets, maybe. And you can have a penalty-killing specialist who only plays, you know, maybe 10 minutes a game. He, he plays key defensive zone draws. He plays every penalty kill. He plays late in games where you're winning. But he's not a very good puck mover, so you don't play him much at 5-on-5. Five five. And instead, you rely more on this speedy puck mover who isn't very good on the power play, isn't very good on the penalty kill. But you can play him some minutes at 5-on-5. Five five. I like the idea of having a bit more flexibility with how you go about composing your roster. And that's why I like the idea of 11-7. and seven. It's why I like the idea of expanded rosters in general. I feel like players would love it. Obviously, owners wouldn't. That's why we're probably not going to see it happen. But I just I like the idea of thinking outside the box and trying something new. And unfortunately, we haven't seen it happen very often. I think the Tampa Bay Lightning a few years ago are the only prominent example of a team who tried it. And the research showed that they were actually much more effective in the games where they used that roster construction of 11 forwards and 7D than in the games where they went with 12 and 6. I just, I like the idea of trying new things. So that's why I want to see it. And having Austin Matthews sit out a game and then maybe putting a defenseman in instead. Or, for example, maybe you have your fourth line center sit out a game and then you play your seventh defenseman and you try some interesting different lineup combinations. It's something Greg Popovich played around with a lot in San Antonio. He went with different starting combinations because Tim Duncan wasn't there. He went with a different bench unit because Manu Ginobili wasn't there. It let him know what worked, what didn't. And then when in the playoffs he needed to adjust his lineup due to, to certain things that were happening, he had more knowledge about those different combinations, so he knew what he could go to and what he probably couldn't go to. I feel like it helps everyone in, involved with the process. We just don't really see it happen because we, we tend to like sticking to what we know works. Right, and here's one. So you're in the playoffs, let's say, right? And every team inevitably goes through their injuries. I mean, Pittsburgh notably, the year they won the Cup, Ron Hainsey was playing on the top pair because they had just been decimated on the back end. Right. But after the trade deadline, there is no roster limit. And in the playoffs, there's no salary cap. So you bring up a lot of teams. What they do in the playoffs is they bring up their players. They call them the black aces. So they end up just they're around the team. They practice sometimes separately. But let's say you have a guy who's banged up. Right. And he's not one of your top end guys. So he's not a Stamkos, a Kucherov, a Patrice Bergeron. Let's say he's your third-line guy, right? Or even your fourth-line guy. And you've got a black ace sitting up in the press box who's been practicing, who's perfectly healthy, ready to go and can bring some jam, whether it's a scoring punch or you need a penalty killer. Like, you're missing something. Is it better to play the player who's playing at probably 70 to 75% but has been a regular in the lineup? Or do you give the guy who's raring to go 100% healthy, can go into every corner like a bat out of hell, do you give him the shot? Like, is there some merit to, hey, maybe if we give this guy a game off, yes, it's the playoffs and every game is precious, but we also need a healthy lineup. So I think in the regular season, I'd say 100%, like rest the, rest the player. But in the playoffs, I understand the fact that you want to have your best players out there, even if they're not 100%. So... That's a tricky one because I feel like it's funny in the regular season we're seeing coaches play that that third line player instead of the the healthier ready to go player who's sitting in the playoffs box when they probably shouldn't be. But in the playoffs I definitely understand that sentiment because personally if someone like Patrice Bergeron has a, a really major injury or someone like Austin Matthews has a major injury, I probably trust him more than I trust Frederick Gauthier with big minutes. So No, I'm talking like let's say um Andre Pallott or Alex Kalorn or... So in Toronto, that may be Zach Hyman. Zach Hyman or um, 
Connor Brown is a perfect example. Well, Connor Brown, I would argue, isn't one of Toronto 12's best forwards at this point. But Okay, but yeah, let's, well, he's not coming to the lineup from what I can see. Or in Montreal, you have like Paul Byron. If they're playing at 65, 75%, is playing a guy who is would generally be a healthy scratcher playing on your AHL roster who probably has a little bit of skill and a little bit of jam, is there some merit to potentially playing him because he's 100%? I think there would be, but I, I doubt that you'd ever see coaches do it just because I feel like trust is such a key component in who gets minutes, especially in the playoffs. And oh, is it ever? So I can't see a coach going with a guy who he hasn't really seen much, a guy he hasn't really trusted much in the past. But again, this is why I feel like it's important to rotate guys into the lineup throughout the course of the regular season. So we get to see these 13th forwards, 14th forwards, 15th forwards, you know, 7th, 8th, 9th, 10th D. Let's find out who can play, who can't. So I know when one of my better players gets hurt, I know which defenseman I can count on because in Toronto, that's kind of the issue right now is that Mike Babcock doesn't really trust Martin Marincin, doesn't really trust Justin Hall, and you end up with Ron Hainsey and Nikita Zaitsev playing almost 25 minutes a night, and that's not an ideal situation. Right, and I think if you're rotating your guys in even in October, November, like let's say you want to give them 25 games, right? Or you have it so some of the older guys, they have they can only play nine of every 10 games, let's say. By then, if you do this throughout the season, by then you will have figured out who you can trust and who you can't, hopefully as a coach, right? So I think there's some merit to doing it right at the beginning of the season as opposed to, oh my goodness, it's March, I need to figure out who I can trust for playoffs, right? So if you would have started um, the rotation, I think Tampa does it. I know they did last year. Um, Washington does a decent job of it in terms of Christian Jew and Brooks or pick. And I know they've had some injuries, but now they've got Nick Jensen on the blue line so they can trust him. But if you have that sort of revolving door of maybe bottom three guys, you have your top three guys who, you know, they're not coming out of the lineup, but you, you then have a group of maybe five guys where it's like, okay, any one of these guys can go in or any three of these guys can be in my lineup and, and we'll be okay. And maybe that just extends to the bottom pairing. So maybe it's your bottom two and you're two out of the lineup. Or what if it's a guy playing alongside a really great player? You know what I mean? I feel like anyone can play alongside a Drew Doughty. I feel like anyone can play alongside a Mark Giordano. Right. So maybe you do something like that. Or what are the merits of putting that young, skilled rookie in the lineup and playing him with David Krejci? Or with Joe Thornton or Joe Pavelski or Johnny Gaudreau. Like, what are the merits of, hey, we have this really skilled player. He doesn't need to come up and go into our lineup on the fourth line. That's not what we're asking him to do. We want him to provide offense. So maybe you put that player in and others get shifted around, but it's for the best sort of optimal lineup, right? And I think I'm just going to end with this last argument. I meant to bring it up earlier, but this is something Dom Lucician's always brought up to me, is that individual players in the NHL don't have as big of an impact on the outcome of the game as they do in a sport like the NBA. Right. And the biggest part of the reason is that in the NBA, you can play your star player like 90% of the game when it comes to the minutes. And if you have a superstar like a James Harden, he can have the ball on 100% of the possessions offensively when he's on the court. You can run the entire offense through him. He will always be the guy running every play on offense. So he's going to have a bigger impact on the outcome of your game because he's on the floor way more often, and he's impacting the game more often. In the NHL, and Austin Matthews doesn't even play 20 minutes a night in Toronto, and when he's on the ice, his team only has the puck about 50% of the time when he's on the ice, and he's not the one who personally has it all that time. So you compare it to the NBA, it doesn't nearly have the, the impact of missing a star player like a Stephen Curry or LeBron James or a James Harden does. It might drop your odds of winning that game by, you know, 3 or 4% if it's a star player, but it's not like 10 or 20% like it would be in another sport. So I think I read this stat that was like, Crosby, if he plays 18 minutes, averages having the actual puck on his stick for less than two minutes. So think about it. It's a 60-minute game, and you, the best player on earth, whether it's Crosby or McDavid, has the puck no more than two minutes. And it's less than that in the offensive zone. Exactly. So it's it's way less than a Curry or a Harden, or even in soccer where like a Lionel Messi will have it for probably seven or eight minutes of the 90. And... Everything on offense runs through those type of players. And I think in hockey that 
it just isn't like that just because of the nature of the game. So that's arguably making it easier for teams to sit their better players because they don't have as much of an impact as a player in basketball would. Well, that's exactly the argument I'm making. I'm saying if you can rest a Steph Curry in the in the NBA, you know, he's he's rested the second half of back-to-backs before because again, the regular season doesn't really matter and it matters even less in the NHL when the playoff format is ridiculous and you have to face the same opponent regardless of your record. So why not rest an Austin Matthews on the second half of a back-to-back? Why not rest an aging Sidney Crosby on the second half of a back-to-back? I guess it comes down to later in the season, if you're fighting for the playoffs, okay, that's essentially a playoff game. But a midweek game in January, you know, a Thursday night game against the Senators in November, who cares? Why not just rest some of your players, especially the older guys, to give them some more rest? It just, it feels to me like something that should be happening. It's something we are seeing in the NBA, but... Haven't seen in the NHL, and and I think that needs to change. We'll we'll see what happens. Yeah, I'm interested to see um, what the sports science department sort of come up with because with the tracking coming in, you'll be able to see how players are doing, whether they're playing rested or they're having issues. And I think that once that sort of starts to get taken with more than just a grain of salt, you'll see teams potentially starting to rest guys, no matter what streak is on the line or how many points there are. Because at the end of the day, you're trying to win the cup. So everything else pretty much doesn't matter. I mean, I thought the regular season was the true test of merit, but... (laughs) Yeah, well, we have the President's Trophy in hockey, but realistically, if you look everywhere else in soccer, the team who wins the league is just the team who finishes with the most points at the end of the season. And then based on how good your league is, then you go to the Champions League and you play other teams. But there's no playoffs in in soccer other than in MLS and that's just because they're playing to the American sort of way of doing things I mean there's league cups you know there's the Copa del Rey in Spain there's the the Barclays uh, what do you call it there's there's the I forget what it's called in the EPL but there there's like a, a playoff-ish kind of thing that happens throughout the regular season right but it's during the regular season and at the end of the day the best team is the team that has the most points at the end of the season so like this year the best team is the Tampa Bay Lightning and in a runaway. So they would get what is known as, well, in Germany, it's the Meisterschale, which is the league championship. And then you go on to the playoffs, but it's just, it's a different culture and that definitely won't change. I mean, I don't want it to change. I absolutely love the playoffs, but I would like to see a different format where we're not trying to shoehorn rivalries and people complain. Like I see Leafs fans complaining that they have to play Boston, The team that gets the most unfair shake in all of this is arguably Boston because let's say they have to play Toronto in the first round. Okay, let's say they beat Toronto. They then have to play Tampa and they finish second or third in the league. How is that the right thing to do? Or even Tampa, who's going to have to play the second round and have to play Boston in the second round. It's just, it's frustrating. Last year, there was the Winnipeg Nashville series where it's like, okay, these are the two best teams in the Western Conference and they completely obliterated each other and the the Jets were gassed for the third round of the playoffs. And I mean, the Stanley Cup final two years ago happened in round two. It was Washington versus Pittsburgh. I feel like everyone watching it knew that whoever won that series was probably going to go on and win the cup. And it's frustrating that we have the best series in the playoffs in the first two rounds. I feel like, you know, you, know, you want to peak in the Super Bowl, which is where you have all the eyes watching. You know, you want to peak in the Stanley Cup finals. But we have all these best matchups happening in round one and round two. The, the, the teams that end up making it so far end up being gassed by the time they get there. I, it's frustrating, but it's another conversation for another day. And we're, we're kind of getting off the rails here. So do, do you want to wrap things up for us, Rachel, in a, in a very polite way? <laughs> yeah, I would just say that I think we're kind of getting to a time where sports science is becoming more prominent in hockey and you see teams with sports science departments uh, most prominently in Toronto but I know there are other teams who have departments that are looking into things like um, player injuries and player rest and it might take a while for a team to really go the direction that the NBA has gone in terms of resting star players or resting players at all but I think there's definitely some merit to the argument especially because you can easily make the argument that star players have less of an impact in hockey than they do in any other sport. Absolutely, especially in basketball. And even in basketball, we're seeing star players rested for the sole purpose of making sure they peak at the right time in the playoffs 
No one cares if you win 73 games in the regular season if you don't bring home the championship. The Warriors learned that the hard way, and now they've essentially stopped caring about the regular season. They're trying to make sure that they peak in April. So here's hoping a lot of teams can kind of learn from that kind of philosophy and try to make sure that they do the same thing. But only time will tell. So I think it's time to get out of here, Rachel. We've been talking about the importance of rest and relaxation. I'm going to go lie down on the couch and pass out for a few hours before my inevitable... uh, Inner Leprechaun comes out, and I have a, have a pretty good evening for uh, St. Patrick's Day. Do you have any big plans tonight? Um, I'm going to the TFC home opener. Um, for everyone that doesn't already know, I'm massively invested into Toronto FC and Bayern Munich. Those are sort of my soccer teams. And uh, now that I'm back in town and have some time, I probably won't be missing a home game for a really long time. So going to go to the home opener and then probably stay downtown for St. Patrick's Day. So... Have one or two green beers, you know? Yeah, absolutely. One or two for sure. Just one or two and then uh, a nice, safe travel home. Definitely not not staying up past midnight. Definitely not. Absolutely not. No, would never consider doing something like that on a Sunday night. Never. Ever. (laughs) Oh, man. I have to get an article in on Monday, too. This is going to be fun. All (laughs) righty. That is awesome. And just so you guys know, we want to keep everyone engaged. So if there's a topic that you want us to cover, whether it's tactical analytics or just a question that you guys have, reach out to us. We're both on Twitter and we'll do our best to uh, maybe have a question segment every week. That would be fun. Maybe have a mailbag at the end of every podcast. Yeah, I'm in. Let's, you know what? We're doing a mailbag. All right. So we're gonna have a mailbag. So if you have questions, tweet at us and we'll get some of those questions answered. The podcast will drop every Monday. So Definitely get our, your questions in probably Saturday night or Sunday morning, and then hopefully we'll get them on the podcast. Yeah, we'll tweet it out. You can listen here at the end of our outro to where to follow us on Twitter. But yeah, it's going to be a lot of fun. We'll have a podcast every Monday where we're diving deep into hockey topics. And that's it for this week. So I hope you enjoyed the show, and we'll see you all next week. Thank you for listening to the Staff and Graph podcast. You can check out Rachel Dory's work at The First Pass, and Ian Tullock's written work can be found at The Athletic and The Leafs Geeks podcast on whatever platform you're listening to this. Also, be sure to follow these nerds on Twitter at Rachel Dory and at Ian Graff. <laughs>